Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. We've got a very familiar voice joining us today. We have the director, production designer, executive producer, and the man who adapted this show for television, Sean Pollock, joining us to talk to us about a very merry, unauthorized children's Scientology pageant live, which is now available for streaming on IFT Network TV. And you can also get the separate live cast album, by going to SoundCloud. And there's also a director's cut, which is available on YouTube. And we're going to learn more about that later. But let's let's dive into all this funness and welcome back, Sean Pollock. Sean, welcome back to Whisper in the Wings from Stage Whisper. Thank you so much for having me again. I'm so happy to have you back here. I'm so happy to be talking about this show. I can't wait to watch this. This is so exciting. The, the title alone has sold me a very merry unauthorized children's Scientology pageant live. Could you tell us a little bit more about this show? Sure. So very merry, that's kind of my shorthand for it because it's such a long title. What I did was a revival, technically the second revival in New York. It started at the tank, I believe in 2003. And then it went to the John Houseman, and then it had an LA run, and then it had a revival, but it used the same designs and the same team. It was just a different cast at New York Theater Workshop in 2006, and that was the last time that it was seen in New York City prior to my production of it. So that that show, first of all, was Kyle Jarrow wrote the book and lyrics based on a concept by Alex Timbers. And that show sort of kickstarted Alex's company, Lafer Caboussier, I think is how you pronounce it, which I don't think exists anymore. Well, it exists, but it doesn't, they don't actively generate work. Later on, of course, Alex made Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson with Lafer, show called Boozy, a few others that I'm forgetting. Hedatron, Dance Dance Revolution, but Very Merry was really the first, and Kyle Jarrow and Alex Timbers were the youngest special citation OB Award winners. They were 23 years old. I think they're still the youngest, actually. So it w- from what I understand of, of the piece is that Kyle at least conceived of a lot of it as a religion major at Yale and undergrad where him and Alex Timbers met. And I don't know a whole lot about the development of, of the show and how it came to be. I imagine that from what I understand, it's very difficult to develop a new musical with a cast of all children. So I, I think they kind of wrote it and just did it is is kind of kind of what i get from it and how i know about the show is because i knew someone who was in it when i was a kid i i was an actor when i was a kid i was in a show called the new kid that used to tour to different schools and it went off broadway the york theater when i was 14 and i always say that like 10 people in my parents saw it so when i say i was like a child actor it was like in a very not famous kind of way. But I did sometimes do two shows a day, like 
touring in schools and stuff, which the older I get, the more I, re- I realize how kind of weird that is, actually. But the uh, Allie Klein, who played the angel in the original Very Mary, was in my acting troupe, which is how I, I learned about it. That's incredible. Wow. I think that with Very Mary, one thing I want to address and, and really got in the way of getting it off the ground is why is the production all kids? And like, you know, they say the number one rule of show business is like never work with children or animals and the Radio City Music Hall has both. Have you ever heard that saying before? So I think there's there's something about the piece that is so special in that it uses all children because I remember Kyle saying, or actually maybe it was Alex, I don't want to misquote, but one of them said in an interview when it came out that they they felt that when you're in a cult, you're seeing the world through childlike eyes. And I always thought that was so interesting because I feel like once you come into these these cults that give you answers to life's questions life's really difficult questions you do the people who do join these things see the world differently they feel enlightened but almost in a very innocent way because at the same time they're also kind of just parroting what they're being told by cult leaders in their community and the ways that children are. And I think the piece always really resonated with me as I got older because I was in a lot of musicals when I was a kid, including the new kid. And I think a lot of times about the directors I worked with, and especially when, for instance, like I did Oliver, just like everyone and their mom at a regional theater called the Darius Theater in Boonton. And I kind of think about how I was like an orphan in that show and I just sort of slept, walked through it. You know, like I feel like I was like singing food, glorious food, but I, I feel like it, it wasn't explicitly, ex- explicitly explained to me. Like you are a starving orphan in like the time of a plague. Like, I don't think I really understood that. And I think a lot of times children in theater, especially if it's like summer camp or youth theater, like I, I think they're just kind of like directors are kind of like, go there, say this. And and so I I think it's such a unique commentary on how kids in musical theater work, how cults work, and then also how pageantry works. I mean, beauty pageants are like that. It's very much like, you know, stand there and like look pretty and wear this thing. And and so, and I, I think pageantry is embedded in the fabric of the American theater. So... It's it's such a beautiful ritualistic breakdown of of what a pageant is and and, and what it what a theatrical ritual is like. Why do we do Christmas pageants? I don't really know. We just kind of decided as a culture from I don't know like early on that that was gonna be a normal thing we do and we just do them. Right? Yes, I completely agree. When I tell people about very merry. People actually expect it to be like Book of Mormon. And I think the difference between something like Book of Mormon and Very Mary is that Very Mary plays it extremely straight. And that, to me, is what makes it so brilliant and funny is that it takes actual church documents and also apparently L. Ron Hubbard in the 70s, like, released some kind of album and some of the melodies are like very close to those melodies and very merry. So it, it really like 
plays it very straight. And I think what why it's such an anomaly is because so it's like really using all of the materials that the church has out there and it's just being delivered by children in a very serious deadpan way. I love that. I think it's really fun. Yeah. Which like you're supposed to Anytime you see kids, you're just, I don't know, there's that societal thing where you're like, you're supposed to like it no matter what. This this was really hard when I was casting it. I mean, I kind of uh, dealt with this and this incarnation of Very Merry more so than I did in the past. I developed the show for five years. Started out doing a concert at 54 Below, then Green Room 42, and then a production in New Jersey that was supposed to be the New Jersey premiere that fell through in a very unceremonious way, and then doing it off probably the Y. But a lot of people, like, ask me if it's pro-Scientology, and I, I think I learned that when they originally did this show that it was just called Very Merry Scientology Pageant Live, but they put unauthorized so that they wouldn't get sued by the Church of Scientology so people knew it was a satire. And I think, again, like the material really speaks for itself because when you when you have this really dry text that sounds kind of hokey, to be honest, and very... I don't know, like used car salesman meets theology. And then it's delivered out of the mouths of impressionable kids. I think it speaks for itself how insane it is. I, I mean, I personally think all religion is insane. So, but I think there is is something about Scientology. I, I think there's a lot of things, actually. It's not just one thing about it that's that's particularly insane. So again, it, it uses it uses all of the documents, the text to really to to make a a statement but at the same time because it it's not commenting on it it's making a statement but it's also taking the text as it is and forcing the audience to arrive at their own conclusions i love that and i kind of want to build on that a little bit you you mentioned developing the show and i want to know what was it like developing this you know, getting it ready to be recorded at the 14th Street Y and everything like that. I say this without a single bit of exaggeration. It was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and it might remain that way. Nothing is more challenging than trying to put together a musical of a certain quality with all children about Scientology. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. <laughs> so first of all, one thing that was very hard about Very Mary that I learned early on is because it happened already, the rights were published by Concord Theatricals. And when I was trying to take it to different producers, it, it was one of two things were deal breakers. It was like the rights and all the kids. And in the original production, which by the way, was completely non-equity, even it was New York Theater Workshop, which I got really lucky when I did it at 54 Below. Jennifer Tepper set me up with a producer named Van Dean, who at the time had just finished producing the revival of your good man, Charlie Brown, the York, which had all kids. And he was one of the producers 
on Matilda. So he really knew like the child acting world quite well. And the beauty of doing a show at 54 Below or any concert venue is that you can use equity actors and you don't have to pay equity or go through equity because it's a concert. It's not a play. So that's that's how a lot of you know musical theater actors make supplementary income by doing concerts. It's a really easy thing to kind of just put up and not have to like deal with all the paperwork or like any like fees or whatever. So I was really lucky in that Van Dean, with his help, I was able to secure all these kids who had like been on Broadway TV and like Anthony Rosenthal from Falsettos was the angel when I did it. Presley Ryan, who later took over for Lydia and Beetlejuice. I mean, so so many, the list is like kind of endless. I mean, it's not, it's not endless. There is actually an end to it, but like, I just mean it in the sense that like all of the kids I got to work with were in, in that 54 below version were so accomplished, so successful and talented and I was 24 I'm 30 now and when when you're that age and you're at the beginning of your career it's such it, and it it honestly for me I was like maybe to some people it'd be more impressive if I was working with a bunch of adults on Broadway or something but like the fact that I got to work with all of these phenomenally talented child actors who had been most of whom had been on Broadway at at 24 at the beginning of my career was such an amazing incredible experience they were all so smart and easy to work with and 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 with van dean on my side it was really like the roads were paved with gold it's like i got one kid and then all the other agencies said yes and it was it was all really easy in that sense but what wasn't easy about it was that i had to pay for it and musicals are you know, expensive. I broke even on it at 54 Below. Then, like I said, after 54 Below, we were on the day after Christmas. And and I just knew that I had this really great thing in the palm of my hand. I had this brilliant cast. Luke McGinnis, my music director at the time, who did a lot of the orchestrations, reorchestrated it in a beautiful way. And I just, I felt like I had all the ingredients for it, for something successful to happen. But then reality hit me quite hard. I would go into meetings with producers, different companies. I, I tried to just see how much it would cost to like rent a theater and do it myself. And I'll, because all of my kids that I had cast in it were equity, the combination of it, of all the equity kids and then how many hours those kids can work. And, and also like, I mean, producers in general, especially these days, it's like the smaller the cast, the better because it costs less money. But also it's like if you're going to be paying equity salaries as a producer, you don't want to pay equity salaries to kids. You want to pay it to adults because adults don't have kids are quite literally gatekept. They're quite literally like the amount of hours they can work. You have to work with, you know, their agent, their manager, their parents, their school. And it's so it's like if you're going to pay that much money it's like you, you don't want to work with that many limitations so that in combination to, with the fact that the rights had been published which would mean then that there were there were royalty fees it would just be really really expensive in a way the original just wasn't because the original was not equity anyway and then i i long story short i did it at green room 42 which was also really hard because by that time i think it was like almost 
two years later, it took that long. And some of my kids had aged out or had other commitments. So I had to recast a lot of it. And then what, I don't know if I should say this, but I'm going to anyway. But when we did it at Green Room 42, we had to pay for the rights. And we didn't have to at 54 Below because there was like an agreement that 54 Below has with Concord Theatricals. Again, I don't know. If I'm, I didn't sign anything saying I couldn't say this. So, but basically, when I did it at 54 below, they they just took it out of my ticket sales, like the license fee. But when I did it at Green Room 42, I had to pay as if it was a full production, which was a few thousand, and that was really like a kind of a huge curveball and really scary at the time because I didn't know that. And when we were working with Green 42, we'd announced it. I was in casting and then I found out like right before I started rehearsals that I had to pay like a few thousand. And I was like, I didn't really prepare for this. And, and so I had to like ask my parents for money and I paid them back and Kyle Jarrow, he's an angel and an amazing person. And he just gave me back the money that he made from it because at that time, I think he just knew how much it meant to me. And he thought it was, because it, it, it was, it was strange. It was strange that, I, that I, I was at one concert venue and I didn't have to pay. And then all of a sudden I was at a new one and I had to pay thousands of dollars. So that wasn't really, I think everyone recognized that wasn't really fair. And then after Green Room, that's when we get into the New Jersey production, which is still kind of a difficult thing to talk about. So basically, there was a kid in the Green Room production, and his mother was a choreographer, and she's a very wealthy woman, and she wanted to choreograph it and produce it, and I was so excited. And again, that's kind of where I learned, like, more of the same, like, like me and this mom would, like, go, and we, like, we went to St. Luke's Theater, I remember we had a meeting at like one of many places and that's kind of where like Ed Gaines there was kind of like, you do know how much this is going to cost, right? And we were like, no. And that's when we kind of got this reality check. Then we were like, all right, this is going to be a little expensive if we want to do it like fully off-Broadway. What happens if we do it in New Jersey? Because I'm from New Jersey. She lived in New Jersey and I we were totally down to make it happen. And so we were going to do it at a theater in Jersey City. To make an extremely long story short, because it is a really long story, she essentially said to me that she was going to pull her investment if I didn't cast her kid in a bigger role as we got closer. And the problem was, is that I, I, the role she wanted for this kid, I felt like vocally he couldn't handle it. And it was very hard for me because... I feel like when it comes to children, especially, they have no agency. And so I think if you're in a situation where you're a leadership position with kids and you're not setting them up for success, you're doing something really wrong. And I felt like I didn't want to make the kid look bad. And I, I think his mom just had a huge ego about like the kid's ability and and that's and and 
I actually did what she wanted to. I did cast him in this role, but then just there, there was a fight that ensued where this kind of stuff came out and she pulled her investment. And then the venue essentially tried to sue both of us because we were pulling out from the show and it was, it was really awful. I was 26 years old and it, it really crushed me because I, I felt I was so ready to do it. And me and this woman had both put money in it. And the whole thing was just a terrible marriage. And I should have flagged when she wrestled my arm from the beginning and tried to get her kid into that bigger role. I should have just walked away. But I just wanted it to happen so badly. I was kind of willing to make a deal with the devil and it, it really hurt. It, it was, and, and that happening changed the trajectory of my life as an artist in the last few years, because basically what ended up happening was that I had a mental breakdown after that happened. And I moved to Philadelphia and I decided that I felt like theater was a stupid endeavor to pursue like as a director and a writer than that i i should focus on something else and i thought to myself what do i want to do with the rest of my life if it's not this and kyle jarrow who you know wrote the book musical lyrics for very merry writes for television famously star trek and that basically sent me down the per- the path to pursue writing and directing for television and then the pandemic happened and i moved back to new york and i got into grad school for writing and producing for television and while i was at liu brooklyn I had this idea to do like a streaming play. And originally I wanted to do a different play, but the rights weren't available. And I, my department gave me some money and I said, all right, well, you know, what happens if I do very merry? And then that's when I learned that if we filmed it, that we didn't have to go through Concord theatricals, like Kyle Jarrow owned the film rights because the contract had been made prior to any Zoom productions. I mean, like the the old before Concord and Samuel French merged, the contract was not specific in terms of film rights. So so he owned them and he gave it to me. And so so I really made sure to follow the like, what is digital theater? What is film kind of parameters? And I decided to try my hand at it as an NBC live kind of special. And we got a SAG micro budget contract and it was it, it was the only reason we weren't on the student production contract was because the film exceeded 35 minutes, but it, but it was an indie student film that I received partial support from LIU Brooklyn TV writer studio. And then my production company unattended baggage. And that's, that's how it happened. So it, it was five very long years. That is an epic journey. Oh my gosh. That's a show in and of itself right there. Well, Andrew, I'm so glad you said that because I I am writing something about it. I've been working on a new play that is, it's not as specific as this, but it is about a young writer 
who has this publishing deal and it's kind of like this dangling carrot as they say it's in the year she turns 26 to 27 and the spoiler the deal doesn't happen and she's very broke and downtrodden and and moves to philadelphia the place called virginia tells it all and it's a dog sees god kind of take on the show as told by ginger on nickelodeon and so that's actually kind of what my next project is probably in the future is trying to develop virginia tells it all going back to very mary and and this particular recorded production is there a message or a thought that you're hoping that viewers and audiences will take away from this yeah i think it's a piece about the importance of thinking for yourself and asking questions and that's what i always talk to my kids about is that it's so easy to go along to get along and I think especially like as child actors they're still trying to figure out like who they are as people while simultaneously having a career which is why I think a lot of people are really against child acting in a a way that makes sense to me and I think a lot of times kids feel like it's like who do i who am i at school who does my who do my parents want me to be who does this casting director want me to be who does this manager want me to be but i also think it's larger than that like i think it's it's really again just a piece about questioning the world around you because even even adults go through through these things all the time and and we're like as adults we're in toxic workplace environments and we're like is this normal should i be treated this way like is is this career path or this partner or the you know whatever like is this is this the path for me and having the strength to ask those questions is really profoundly important because I believe that when people don't have that strength and they feel really lost and down on themselves that that's what makes them really susceptible to joining cults yes I think that's a great point a great idea to be passing on yes so finally for this first part I mean, who do you hope have access to a Very Mary now that it's streaming and everything? Everyone. Everyone has access to it, which is so cool. There are a number of reasons that are not interesting and too long to go into, including just like working with SAG. Because a lot of my kids, or some of my kids wear SAG and equity. Why I couldn't monetize off Very Mary in any way. So hence anyone can view it for free. And I it sucks because to be honest with you, I mean I I lost some money on it and I, I'm probably never gonna see it back. But that's art, you know. I mean I'm not that I'm advocating for people to lose money on their art at all. And, and I will say if I if I knew how much money I was gonna lose, I might not have done it. But I do think there's something really beautiful that anyone can watch the director's cut anyone can watch a theatrical cut and anyone can download it on soundcloud because i i literally was not allowed to profit off of it in any way shape or form Look, I want to change gears now. And I know that our listeners just recently had the chance to get to know you a little bit. And I want to just pry a little bit deeper because you you mentioned that you were a child actor, of course. 
And I'm curious to know, how did you come into the performing arts? You know, it's a good question because I remember I took like a few acting classes. I grew up in northern New Jersey in a town called Mountain Lakes that's like a little over an hour outside the city. So, but I, I, the town I grew up in was like very athletic and waspy and I was just like very nice athletic and I was always a very creative kid I actually really liked writing a lot and drawing when I was little and then when I was about 10 or 11 I started doing like chorus more and I was like oh I actually like singing and acting is like fun and then I started doing some community theater and then I don't I it was like a family friend I think who had a kid who was involved in in the sandcastle troupe which did two shows the people garden the new kid and there were they were like, oh, Sean should audition for this if he likes performing. And I remember I sang the song Teacher's Pet and I got it on the spot. And then it was it was interesting the way it was set up. The New Kid was a show about like bullying and peer pressure. And well, it was like very like after school special and, and kids would rotate roles and we'd have rehearsal once a week and then we would do shows during the school day. And like I said, sometimes I would do like two shows a day when I was like 11 or something. But then my mom would always make me go back to school after I performed because she like wanted me to have a normal childhood or something and jokes on her because my childhood was very traumatizing. So the new kid like had very little bearing on that, I think. Yeah, and then like I said, when I was 14, the new kid... So the People Garden had already been off Broadway at the York. And then in 2007, the People Garden and the New Kid were not in rep because that connotates that it was the same actors. But basically both shows were running at the same time at the York. And again, because it was all kids, we didn't all go on for every performance. So I think I only went on maybe three times or something during the run. But yeah, but then I did that at the York when I was 14. And that was really cool. It was scary because I, I remember being like, oh, this is like of a different you know, scale than what I'm used to. But, you know, I mean, it was like a show on Saturday mornings at the York Theater that was with a cast of all kids. And I don't think a lot of adults really wanted to see it. So I always joke that, like, the audience was, like, 10 people and my parents, which, like, is basically true. But there there were kids in The New Kid that went on to go to do bigger things. But my parents... My parents were so not show business people and they they didn't want me to have like an agent or a manager and I think that's like probably for the best at the end of the day. I don't know. But so it's kind of what it was like. I mean I I moved to North Carolina the year after that, which was really weird. Cause I like I just in like an off Broadway show and then I was like in the middle of North Carolina and I was like, I'm not like supposed to be here. <laughs> yeah. Plot twist. <laughs> Yeah, it was like it was like record scratch. It was like maybe you're wondering how I got here. Yeah, so one one of those. That's fascinating, though. Now that we recently had you on our show, you were talking about unattended baggage productions, Cowgirl, which is coming up. But do you have any other projects or productions that are coming down the pipeline that we might be able to plug? No. I think what I what I've learned as I've gotten older, especially because very merry took so long, is that like I've heard the expression like good things take time, great things happen all at once, which I think is true. But like 
I am developing Virginia Tells It All, the play I was talking about earlier. That's kind of a, like an allegory for my very merry experience. And so I would love to see that get a workshop or like a public reading, but I don't know when it's happening. And I wrote another suspense play recently called Keep Your Enemies Closer. That's about a child actor that goes missing. So I don't know. Hopefully both of those will get done at some point. If anyone wants to hire me to direct something or write some or design something, I'll do it. Like, <laughs> you know. Well, you know, that that is a great plug for the final question I have, though, which is if our listeners want more information about a very merry unauthorized children's Scientology pageant live or about you, they might want to maybe reach out to you. How can they do so? unattended underscore baggage underscore co on instagram our website is unattendedbaggagecompany.com and then i'm on instagram at sean p underscore yo my name is spelled s-e-a-n and if you want to talk to me in person use my show cowgirl which opens august 10th off probably at the players theater that i'm directing and designing yes and I cannot wait to see that show. We are excited to be attending that show. So wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be doing it. It's really, it's fun. It's funny. It's a good time. Well, Sean, it has been so wonderful to speak with you again. And this time about this wonderful show that has an incredible journey with it. Thank you so much for your time and for Thank everything. You. Appreciate you. Oh my God. Thank you so much for having me as always and taking the time to let me ramble about this passion project and and i just want to say so we're doing this like christmas in july push right now and part of why that is just really quickly because i know we're done but what I, one thing I, I learned in this process is the the editing for very merry was so intense because we were dealing with lo- mixing live music which is very hard especially when you have multiple camera angles and i really wanted to release it for thanksgiving and then that didn't happen and then i was like okay christmas and then that didn't happen and it actually got released like february 12th or something like and it was so after the holidays that i was like kind of disappointed and and i like ran out of money to promote it so that's why that's why I'm here doing it now. So watch Very Merry in July. Watch it in August. Watch it in the holidays. Watch it whenever you want. It's a Scientology pageant. It's fitting for all times of year. Well, and- wonderful. Well, Sean, thank you again. I appreciate you. And I hope we get to talk again soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs> My guest today has been the director, production designer, executive producer, and the person who adapted this show for television, Sean Pollock. And of course, that show is A Very Merry Unauthorized Children's Scientology Pageant Live. It is available for streaming on IFT Network TV, and you can also listen to a separate live cast album that's available on SoundCloud. And if you head to YouTube, you can see a special director's cut version of it, which all of these are great options. You can also reach out to Sean and follow him via some via various links and um, social media handles that we'll be posting on our episode description and our social media posts. But in the meantime... Tis the season, we suppose, you know, but head over to YouTube, head over to IFT Network TV, go and watch this 
hilarious and great show, a very merry, unauthorized children's Scientology pageant live. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez reminding you to turn off your cell phones, unwrap your candies, and keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Maniac by Jazzar. Other music on this episode provided by Jazzar and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you will find all the information about our backstage pass as well as our tip jar. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. The light of all-